the story of psychology, based on the work of Dr. C. George Bore, with your host, Professor Todd. Part One, The Ancients. Francis Bacon. Francis Bacon was born January 22, 1561. His father was Lord Keeper of the Royal Seal under Elizabeth I, something similar to the Secretary of the Treasury in the United States President's Cabinet today. When his father died early, young Francis was left without an estate, and so he went to study law. At the ripe old age of 23, Francis Bacon was elected to Parliament, where he was a strong advocate of religious toleration, and his fortunes began to improve. In 1607, King James I, namesake of the King James Bible, made Francis Bacon Solicitor General, and in 1613, Attorney General, and in 1617, Lord Keeper of the Royal Seal the same position that had been held by his late father. The following year, the king made him a baron and the Lord Chancellor, basically the king's right-hand man. Francis Bacon's real love, however, was science and philosophy. He wrote a book called The Novum Organum of 1620 that refined the art of logical thinking and he proposed a new method for science. Now this book, The New Organum, was taken from the title of a book by Aristotle called The Organum. What Francis Bacon was doing with this title was quite cheeky. The Organum had been the scientific literature handed down from Aristotle. And now Francis Bacon was writing The New Organum, the one that would replace the great Aristotelian tradition. Bacon suggested that we use induction, working from facts to theory, instead of from theory or from the Bible to the facts. Bacon was wary of hypotheses, which he felt were as likely to be superstition or wishful thinking as anything else. But in fact, suggested what we would now call the testing of hypotheses in the form of a process of elimination of alternative explanations. In 1621, soon after the king raised Bacon to Viscount, the parliament impeached him for taking bribes. Now certainly, Bacon had indeed taken many bribes. But so had everyone else, and so the impeachment was really a political slap at the king. However, being out of political office allowed Bacon to continue full-time the science and philosophy that he loved. He began a project with the help of the king called the Great Renewal, which was to be a review of all of the sciences. Basically, the Great Renewal involved purging ourselves our intellects, of our biases. He called these biases idols, and he named four. Number one, idols of the tribe. The tribe that Bacon is referring to is us, the human tribe. So the idols of the tribe 
are our natural tendencies toward bias, such as reading our own wishes into what we suppose we see. We're looking for patterns or a purpose to everything, and so forth. The second, idols of the cave. The cave is the little box we live in as individuals. So the idols of the cave are our own distortions and biases that we have as individuals, such as those based on our own peculiar backgrounds and educations, as well as the intellectual heroes we emulate, such as Aristotle. Third, idols of the marketplace. Now, the marketplace is society, and the main threat to clear thinking from society is its use of language. The common uses of words are not necessarily fit for scientific and philosophical use, and common sense, or the logic that we presume that we are using when we speak, is not that logical and not that common. And words can exist that have references that do not exist, a root of great confusion. And number four are the idols of the theater. Now, the theater refers to the show places of scientific ideas and theories, journals, books, famous names, famous theories, particular scientific designs or methods that have won recognition. These are the appearances of truth. Bacon says we should take care not to idolize or dogmatize whatever theories are presently accepted, even if they are promoted by authorities in their field or appear to be accepted universally. In 1624, Francis Bacon published The New Atlantis, a utopian fiction about an island in the South Pacific ruled by scientists. They lived in a university-like setting called Solomon's House after their founder and were chosen for their position by tests of their merit, just like the philosopher kings in Plato's Republic. This may have been the model for England's Royal Society, that is, the Royal Society of Scientists. In the New Atlantis, Francis Bacon predicted quite a few modern inventions, including cars, planes, radio, and anesthetics. Francis Bacon died in 1626 at the age of 65, after catching cold while experimenting with preserving chicken by freezing. He is considered the father of British philosophy, and the intellectuals of France dedicated their monumental encyclopedia to him in 1751. Galileo Galilei Galileo Galilei was born in Pisa, Italy, February 18, 1564, the same year as William Shakespeare was born, and the same day that Michelangelo died. When Galileo was 18, he discovered the principle of the pendulum. At age 22, he invented hydrostatic balance. 
perfecting his telescopes, he managed in 1610 to discover four of the nine moons of Jupiter, the rings of Saturn, and the phases of Venus. He is most famous, of course, for the law of gravity, stating that two things of the same size and shape, but of different weights, will fall at the same speed through the same medium. That he demonstrated this by dropping things off of the Leaning Tower of Pisa is probably a myth. But who knows? On the philosophical front, Galileo was the first to make the distinction, which would become so important in English philosophy, between primary and secondary qualities. Primary qualities were physical properties of matter that could be measured, height, weight, distance, and therefore could be made the subject of scientific analysis. Secondary qualities, on the other hand, were things that required the presence of a conscious living creature. Tastes, odors, colors, sounds. If only these could be converted into primary qualities, then, Galileo believed, they might become the subjects of science. Galileo considered Copernicus's theory as a proven fact and taught it as such. The Church, however, and especially the Jesuits, would only accept Copernicus's theory if it were stated as a hypothesis, in a similar way that some fundamentalists today will only tolerate the teaching of evolution if it is presented as just one theory among many. Now, Galileo pointed out to his critics that the Bible should not be read literally. If you do read the Bible literally, you end up with no end of absurdities and contradictions. The Bible is meant to be taken metaphorically. Ooh, you can tell this isn't going to end well. And here are some quotes that Galileo wrote in a letter to the Grand Duchess Christina of Tuscany in 1615. Quote, Nothing physical, which sense experience sets before our eyes, or which necessary demonstrations prove to us, ought to be called into question, much less condemned, upon the testimony of biblical passages, which may have some different meaning beneath their works. I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God, who has endowed us with sense, reason, and intellect, has intended us to forego their use. End quote. In 1616, the Inquisition told Galileo to stop teaching Copernicus's theory, and in fact condemned all publications and books by any author that did so. Galileo, probably recalling Giordano Bruno's fate only 16 years earlier, quieted down. You may recall that Bruno was the one who was executed by being burned at the stake, naked with a nail driven through his tongue. He later became a hero to freethinkers. Meanwhile, however, Galileo continued to work on his book on Copernicus's theory. He eventually presented the theory as a hypothesis only, putting it in the form of a dialogue between supporters and detractors. The Dominicans attacked the book, saying that Galileo was even a greater danger to the church than Luther and Calvin, and in the long run, they were probably right. 
As it turns out, however, there is more to Galileo's story than is commonly presented. So let's take a moment to explore Galileo's teachings and writings in a little more depth. The Galileo Affair in 1610, Galileo published Sidaris Nuncius, The Starry Messenger. It was his account of his telescopic observations of the moons of Jupiter. He named these moons the Medician Stars, in honor of four brothers who were from the Medici family, patrons of Galileo. You have to remember that at this time, scientists often had to gather personal patrons who would support their work and pay for their living as they did their science. Well, the incontrovertible discovery of moons orbiting around a planet other than Earth dealt a serious blow to the Ptolemaic world system, or the geocentric theory. Geocentric, that the Earth is at the center of the universe. So in 1612, opposition arose to this heliocentric theory of the universe, helio, or sun, being at the center of the universe. Galileo responded to his critics by inviting them to stare through his telescope and see the moons circling Jupiter for themselves. And many of his critics refused to even look through the telescope, suggesting that the telescope was revealing only devilish distortions. In 1614, Father Tommaso Caccini, a Dominican, denounced Galileo's opinions on the motion of the earth from the pulpit of the Basilica of Santa Maria Novella. Now, there are many biblical passages that seem to say that the earth is standing still. First Chronicles 16.30 says, Fear before him all of the earth. The world also shall be stable, that it be not moved. Psalm 93.1 says, The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he has girded himself. The world also is established, that it cannot be moved. And Psalm 96.10 says, Say among the heathen that the Lord reigneth. The world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. And in addition to these passages that suggest the earth stands still, there are other passages that seem to say that the sun moves around the earth. Ecclesiastes 1.5 The sun also ariseth and the sun goeth down, and hasteth to his place where he arose. The book of Joshua contains a story about a battle being fought. Joshua prays to the Lord for more time to fight the battle, and in Joshua 10.13, the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven and hasted not to go down about a whole day. For his part, Galileo saw no reason to accept these biblical passages as scientific evidence, and therefore Galileo went off to Rome to defend himself against the accusations leveled at him by Father Tommaso Caccini. Now, it's easy at this point to assume that Galileo was right and the church was wrong. 
But, as I said, there's more to the story than that. What I hope to convince you of is that Galileo was right for the wrong reasons, and the church was wrong for the right reasons. You see, you have to understand the difference between the Jesuits and the Dominicans. The Dominicans were much more literalist and fundamental in their reading of Scripture. For the Dominicans, the proof of the biblical passages I just quoted was enough to establish that the earth stood still and the sun moved around the earth. And who could blame them? Common sense also tells us that the earth we are standing on is not moving, and we can clearly see the sun moving across the sky. Any other view was counterintuitive. The Jesuits, by contrast, were more scientific in their thinking. One Jesuit, Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, took Galileo to the rooftop of the Vatican, and together they looked through Galileo's telescope and saw the movement of the Jovian moons. In fact, Bellarmine found no problem with heliocentrism, as long as it was treated as a purely hypothetical calculation device, and not as a physically real phenomenon. Any other teaching was counterintuitive. So if one were to make the claim that the earth did not in fact stand still, one would have to offer proof as any good scientist would demand when, con when confronted by such a counterintuitive claim. So it turns out that the church, with its teaching that the earth stands still, was wrong for the right reasons. They would not accept theory without sufficient proof. And Galileo was right for the wrong reasons. You see, Galileo's greatest and most convincing proof was the tides. Imagine carrying a large bowl of water, and as you carry that bowl, you would see the water sloshing back and forth. The water is moving because you are moving as you carry the bowl. Well, in a similar way, the tides move back and forth on the earth. Clearly, Galileo reasoned, the movement of the tides was evidence of the movement of the earth. We now know, of course, that the movement of the tides is a function of the gravitational pull of the moon. Galileo was right that the earth, in fact, was moving, but he was right for the wrong reasons. Galileo's visit to Rome in 1616 was pleasant enough. Galileo, as a pious Roman Catholic, also had many friends and admirers in Rome, including the Pope. In fact, Galileo met with the Pope, who assured him that he, Galileo, was safe from persecution so long as the Pope should live. Cardinal Robert Bellamine personally handed Galileo an admonition, enjoining him to neither advocate nor teach Copernican astronomy, again, without sufficient proof. And with that admonition he sent Galileo along his way home. However, rumors began to circulate, especially among the Dominicans, that Galileo had been forced to recant his views and to do penance. So Galileo requested a letter from Robert Bellarmine stating the truth of the matter. 
that he had only been told not to advocate or teach Copernican astronomy. And this letter would assume great importance in 1633. Now, in 1630, Galileo received permission from the censor at Rome to print the dialogue concerning the two chief world systems. Now, a censor was more like the editor-in-chief. He was not the one who would remove offensive passages from books. And the censor at Rome was the person from whom Galileo would have to receive permission in order to publish. The Pope at this time was Pope Urban VIII. Born Maffeo Barberini, Urban VIII was Pope from 1623 to 1644. He was a Jesuit and also a friend. In fact, he encouraged Galileo to publish the dialogue. He did, however, require that the book must include a statement that God could also have made the world to work with multiple causes. And so with the permission that Galileo received, he was prepared to publish his book in Rome. However, a plague struck Rome at this time. That meant it was not safe to travel to Rome. And so, wanting to get his book published, Galileo published it in Florence in 1632. He did not, however, have permission to publish in Florence. Now, remember, the title of the book is The Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. But the original title was The Tides. In fact, one of the main thrusts of the arguments in the dialogue is that the movement of the tides demonstrates the movement of the earth. And so the dialogue was published in 1632. It takes the form of a series of discussions, which occur over four days between two philosophers and a layman as they travel around Italy. The three characters are Salviati, Segredo, and Simplicio. Salviati argues for the Copernican position, and he is the character who presents Galileo's views directly. Segredo is an intelligent layman who initially is neutral, but eventually comes to believe and is persuaded by Salviati. Now, Simplicio was a follower of Ptolemy and Aristotle. He was named after the commentator Simplicius of Cilicia. However, it did not escape the notice of many of Galileo's readers that the word Simplicio also plays on the name Simpleton. And this certainly did not help Galileo's cause when he had to answer to the Pope later on. But, in fact, Galileo did include the Pope's required disclaimer. However, which character do you think was given the line which was the disclaimer from the Pope? That's right. It was Simplicio. And... Galileo saved this disclaimer until the last line of the last page of the book. Here's how it goes. Simplicio. Whether God, by his infinite power and wisdom, might confer upon the element of water the reciprocal motion in any other way than by making the containing vessel to move, I know that you will answer that he might. 
and it would be an extravagant boldness for anyone to go about to limit and confine the divine power to some one particular conjecture of his own. To which Salviati replies, in a no doubt sarcastic line, Ah, what a truly angelic doctrine! Well, when the Pope read this, he felt betrayed. He felt that Galileo had stabbed him in the back. And you have to remember that the Pope at this time was already under attack by the Spanish cardinals for his being too tolerant of heretics. Remember the Spanish Inquisition? And the Reformation with the Protestants had made everyone sensitive to heresy. And so here was Galileo, whom the Pope had encouraged to write this book, Galileo making the Pope look like a fool. And so, in October 1632, Galileo was ordered to appear before the Holy Office in Rome. At his trial, his inquisitors produced an unsigned 1616 Codex stating that Galileo had been given an injunction to abandon this doctrine, not to teach it to others, not to defend it, and not to treat of it. At this point, Galileo produced his own 1616 signed letter from Cardinal Robert Bellarmine, in which, while he had agreed not to hold or defend Copernican ideas, he could treat them hypothetically. Now this, we might say, is awkward. Here are the inquisitors supposedly bringing forth a letter from a cardinal saying that Galileo had been told specifically not to write this book, and yet Galileo himself has a signed copy from that cardinal saying something very different. So where did that first codex come from? No one knows for sure, but I don't think you have to imagine too hard that they might have made it up. So Galileo was 68 years old, and over the course of four interrogations, he was threatened with torture, although not actually tortured. He was given the second degree, not the third degree. The first degree would be to be described the methods of torture, the second degree to be taken to the place where the torture would be accomplished and shown the implements of torture, and the third actually being tortured. So, seeing these implements, knowing what was to be done to him if he did not recant, he initially refused, but with a little less intensity over each time. And finally, after four interrogations, he did recant. He was found vehemently suspect of heresy. And when he was signing the letter of recantation, legend holds that he muttered under his breath, Epoisua move, and yet it moves. And this is very unlikely to be true. For his punishment, Galileo was placed under house arrest in 1634, at his country house outside of Florence. But he was otherwise free to teach and to write. He went completely blind in 1638. Galileo Galilei died on January 8, 1642. 
and science suffered quite a blow in the Catholic countries, with many scientists fearful of stating their views. And this served to move the center of scientific discovery to the Protestant North. Now, this was not because the Protestants were more tolerant of science, but because the churches in the North and the Protestant countries had less legal authority. In 1835, the church finally did take Galileo's books off the banned books list. And in the year 2000, Pope John Paul II issued a formal apology for all of the mistakes committed by some Catholics in the last 2,000 years, including the trial of Galileo. 